Uh, my name is Rick. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the student ministers here, and I have the great pleasure of bringing Psalm 29 to us tonight. Um, so how about we pray as we get started? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is powerful, that it does challenge us, and uh, it changes the way that we think. And we pray that it would do that tonight, and that it would build us up in the knowledge of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. When we were young, we used to think the world was sort of truly awesome in, in that true sense of the word awesome. Uh, even the, the smallest, most insignificant things, everything from an ant to a bug to a leaf, all those things were just captivating, weren't they? Um, and when we were young, we, we were so fascinated, we, we'd just bug our parents all day long with, with endless questioning about what things were and, and why they did what they did and why and how, and it just kept on going. When I was young, I, um, I really wanted to know what things were made of. And so I remember one day we were out in the backyard and we had this great big jacaranda tree and my dad was out there with me. And I asked him, I said, you know, Dad, what's, what's this tree made out of? And he said, oh, it's, it's made of leaves and bark. And I go, okay, great, that's awesome. And I said, well, what are they made out of? And he paused and he said, oh, well, they're made of, made of wood, Richard, made of wood. And I go, oh, that's great. I said, but what's, what's that made out of? And he paused even longer and he said, atoms, Rick, they're made of atoms. I go, oh, that's awesome, that's great. I said, what are atoms made out of? <laughs> anyway, by that time he walked inside and I was left alone. But you see, uh, as we get older, I think we, we stop asking those questions. Um, we, maybe we just forget how awesome the world is. Um, maybe we think we've got a bit of a, an answer for everything. Uh, every loose end is sort of tied up. Everything's been explained or, or so we think. Uh, or maybe we've just lost interest. I'm not, I'm not really sure what the answer is there. But it's a shame, really, because when we read a psalm like Psalm 29, we, we sort of shrug it off as being a little bit irrelevant, maybe even out of date. But I think this psalm is, is really important for us, especially in our day and age. It reminds us the world around us is awesome because it is the work of an awesome God. See, this psalm is especially important for us as we live in a world that likes to explain things without God. Uh, somehow we're prevented from giving glory to the God who made these things. Um, so that's what we're going to think about today as we look at this psalm. We're going to think carefully about how we see the world around us, how God's voice is the power behind it, and how that pushes us to praise him, and how it gives us confidence as well as his people. So let's get into it. Have your Bibles open there at Psalm 29. Have an outline if you find that helpful, um, and we'll get into it. So first off... We see that this is a psalm of praise, um, and it's a psalm of praise because it calls everyone who's gathered together uh, to give praise to God. Only the unique thing here is that it's not only those who are gathered together on earth, but also those who are gathered in heaven. Look at what it says in verse 1. It says, Ascribe to Yahweh, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Heavenly beings simply means angels. Uh, you might have a footnote in your Bibles that says sons of God, which is a more literal reading, uh, but that's all it means. It's, it's talking about the heavenly host or, or God's angels. But why is it doing that? I think this psalm actually wants to raise our eyes uh, above our earthly experience as if to draw us up into heaven to see God with his angels around him uh, in power and in glory. Uh, that's why in verse 2 it actually makes a point of it, this time speaking to us as we gather. Look at verse 2. It says, Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. 
worship Yahweh in the splendor of his holiness. So we picture this, this scene in our minds. We, we gaze upon God in all his glory. He sat upon the throne with angels sort of arrayed around him. And you can just marvel at the splendor of his holiness. Now, this shouldn't be an entirely new concept for us. Uh, we've just been recently going through the book of Revelation. Uh, where We've been getting all sorts of vivid images of, of God seated on the throne uh, with angels arrayed around him, um, you know, terrifying creatures with, with too many eyes and they're flying with heaps of wings and, and there's a, a sea of glass beneath the throne. It's, a, it's an incredible thing to picture in our minds. And I wonder, is this something that actually crosses our minds all that often? You know, when we think about the world around us, do we include the heavens like the scriptures do over and over again? Or do we only think of in terms of things that we can actually see uh, in front of us? See, some people, I think, have the great difficulty of seeing the world through the lens of the Bible. But if we don't accept that there is a spiritual realm, both around us, beneath us, and above us, well, I think we'll find it hard to hold on to the gospel at all. See, the Bible is all about supernatural things. The very concept of God is outside our earthly human experience. That's because God is, by definition, holy and set apart. He's separate to us. See, God created the world, but he also governs our world. He makes the rules and he breaks them if he chooses to. That's why it shouldn't surprise us when, when Jesus, God the Son, he walks on water. He heals the lame. He raises the dead. Because he rules creation in a way that we don't as humans. So people seem to think it's kind of illogical to believe that, that Jesus can do such things. But frankly, I, I don't really see the problem. I mean, sure, if he wasn't God, then yes, it would be very hard to believe. Um, but that's exactly the point. It's, it's no problem for God to break the rules of his creation because he's God. This is one of the very ways that he shows us who he is. Anyway, I don't understand the problem. I, I think this picture that we have of God in heaven, he, he's surrounded by his angels, is actually really encouraging because it reminds us that the God we worship is, is totally supreme. Totally supreme. See, the fact that angels are called to respond to God in the same way that we are, uh, by ascribing or, or giving glory to God in heaven, it reminds us that even the most impressive things of heaven, even they, uh, the angels, as awesome as they are, even they give their glory to God. The point is that there is nothing, not here on earth or in heaven, that is greater than God. And so we're called, we're called to praise and glorify him. Now you might say that's all good and, and well for, for the angels who are in heaven, they get to see God, but what about for us here in, on earth as humans, what about us? Well this psalm, it wants us to, to be reminded that actually we too, we get to observe God's powerful voice on display for us here on earth. Look with me in verse 3 and 4. It says, The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord above vast waters. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. Here we have a description of a storm that's sort of collecting out over the ocean. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched a storm do that over the ocean. I think it's one of the most beautiful sights you can see. Um, but here we're, we're called to view the storm as a demonstration of God's powerful voice. Uh, and it does that, I think, in a few different ways. Firstly, I think it makes us think back to creation. 
the creation of the world that, that's in the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 1, where it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And what happened there? Well, God speaks the world into being from nothing. Sadly, today, I think we're actually more often ashamed of the fact that God created the world by his powerful word than we are proud of it. See, when we're pushed, we don't really want to admit that the God, uh, sorry, that the Bible says God spoke the world into being. And that's not because it's not true, that's because we live in a world that is hostile towards God. And it amazes me, um, often we, we, we turn on the television and we, we get these uh, documentaries, and they're documentaries that are hosted by uh, all sorts of celebrities. You get people like uh, Will Smith, and he's, uh, he's um, talking about how the earth is the single most amazing thing that's ever existed, and quite right. Right? It's amazing. But they talk about the, the astronomical odds of, of anything happening uh, the way that it has to support life in the way that it does here on Earth. And they talk about the extraordinary complexity of the human body. You know, they're absolutely flabbergasted about it. And yet, at the end of it all, though they acknowledge this, they shrug their shoulders and they go, wow, what an amazing accident. What marvellous luck. It's like the, the British evangelist Rico Tice um, he puts it well, he says, it's like looking at the work of an artwork and, say, and not wondering who painted it. See, we mustn't let the world trick us into thinking that there is a better explanation for our world. God is the most reasonable explanation for our world. Romans 1.20 says that the world is so clearly made by God that all of humanity is guilty for denying it. Just look at what it says up on the screen. It says, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. That's how clear it is. On another level, uh, I think these verses remind us that God is the one who creates the storm. That to hear the thunder is to hear his voice, sort of thundering from heaven, uh, as he sits enthroned over the seas. Uh, I don't know about you, um, I think the ocean is more or less terrifying. Um, I, have a, I have a rational fear of sharks. Um, I I'm okay with that, I'm not worried about that. Um, personally, I don't think I'm about to join anyone for a, you know early morning surf. I just think that's crazy, that's not for me. Um, I don't think humans really made for water. Um, I think fish, they definitely are, they seem to do very well. Um, but humans, they sort of flap and flail about, and from what I hear, that makes sharks even more excited. Um, so, look, that's not, that's not me. But anyway, despite my uh, fear of the ocean, uh, or the great deep, if you want to call it that, here in this psalm, we see that God is sovereign over it, absolutely sovereign over it. And I can't help but think of Jesus as he calms the storms uh, when he's in the boat with his disciples and the waves are crashing in and they think they're going to die and they wake him up. And what does he do? He calms the wind and the waves with a word. Everything is still. It's no wonder that they then ask themselves, who then is this? I think uh, at times like this, when our world uh, seems to be mimicking the waves of an ocean, uh, it's good to know that despite what it looks like, we have a God who is in complete control. See, as Christians, we don't need to be panicking at a time like this, where, where governments and nations are out of control as, as plagues ravage the land with sickness and with death. 
you know, as bad as these things are, we know that God is in control, that no amount of anarchy can separate us from the God who loves us in Christ Jesus. Well, let's move on to verse 5. It's as if the psalm moves with the storm. So he begins over the ocean and then he moves onto the land. And for the Israelite, the storm starts over their northern neighbours and then it moves into the wilderness, wreaking havoc down in the south as well. So read with me in verse 5. It says, The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. Here the psalmist paints a, a, a picture of a violent storm. It's, it's crashing thunder. It's rumblings of an earthquake. It's thunderbolts of lightning. It's very, very frightening. See, first, the voice of the Lord, like a lightning bolt, he shatters the cedars of Lebanon. Now, the cedars of Lebanon in the Bible, they, they function as a symbol of majesty and strength. Um, the idea, it keeps on coming up because the cedars uh, were used uh, to build all the greatest buildings from temples to palaces. Even Solomon, he built the, the temple of God using cedars from Lebanon. So it's not hard to imagine how these same cedars became a symbol of pride as well. That's why the prophets, they keep speaking of them in this way. See, Lebanon's pride was their timber, their cedars. And now I admit, cedar is one of my favourite timbers. It has a lot of good things going for it. For example, it's very good at resisting humidity. So most other timber, uh, it would want to sort of rot and turn back into a tree, but not cedar. No, cedars love it. That's why you can build saunas out of it. it it's light, it's strong, it's beautiful. There's, there's a lot going for it. And it's one of my favourite timbers to cut Yes, the, the smell of freshly cut cedar, it's actually very distinct, it's very unique, and it's, it's beautiful. And apparently God loves it too, because he smashes them to smithereens. You see, God's voice, with bolts of lightning, he makes Lebanon and Syrian frolic off like a calf or a young ox. Syrian is a, another name for a mountain in Lebanon. Uh, it's a mountain that's associated with, with idol worship. And here the psalm reminds us that the nations, they're nothing compared to God. They cannot compare with him. Which is really important for Israel. You know, throughout history, uh, their neighbours, they're always threatening to extinguish their faith, to lead them into idolatry. And we actually live in exactly the same world. You see, we live among people who don't know God, who would prefer it if we didn't speak about him who would prefer it if we joined in with them, living in rebellion against Christ the King. But this psalm here is a great encouragement that like a storm, God's voice scatters his enemies. Yes, the voice of our God is powerful. It flashes flames of fire, lighting up the whole sky. See, God's voice strikes terror in Lebanon in the north and in the wilderness of Kadesh in the south. The wilderness of Kadesh is where the Israelites, they, they wandered after coming out of Egypt, after being rescued through the sea, after their enemies were defeated by God's great power. And in the wilderness of Kadesh, well, they complained that they had no water. They, they lost their faith in God. So God, what did he do? He provided water from the rock through Moses. See, what they forgot, what they didn't realize is that God's 
powerful voice was present even in the wilderness. So it's with these elements of Scripture this, and the witness of a powerful storm striking fear on earth, it's, it's with these things in mind that by the end of verse 9, all in his temple, they cry out, glory, glory to God. And that's something we can do too. See, this psalm is, I think, a fresh look at our world and a much needed one too. It reminds us that we do not live in a, in a purely natural world, uh, a world where things just happen by chance, a world where, um, where God is absent and missing. No, we live in a world that God has created. Yes, the storm is a great demonstration of his power. It's interesting to think that humans have actually always seen it as an obvious thing that God is behind the world. Human beings are inherently very religious. I think history proves that. Many cultures today, they still serve idols for their crops, for their seasonal rains, for the storms that they need to live. Um, now, of course, they got it wrong because idols are not real. There is one true living God. But at least they recognise something that is greater than themselves. Strangely, here in the West, though, well, God has just been removed from the picture altogether. At least that's the view that we hear most on TV. Instead of looking at our world and seeing his goodness, his holiness, his power and his strength, instead of seeing these things, we, we see and explain our world in purely mechanical, sort of material terms. And it got me thinking, you know, when I speak, when I speak, you can explain it in, in very scientific terms. You can say, well, my vocal cords, they vibrate, they produce a sound which travels through the air and that lands on your eardrums and you hear and understand things. You know, that's great. But you'd never say that it wasn't my voice, would you? In the same way, we, we can't explain things uh, without God's voice being the powerful and active agent behind them. Nothing happens apart from his doing I think we need to sort of push back as Christians. Uh, we should start trying to speak in a way that properly acknowledges the truth. Instead of saying nature, we can say creation. You just see how people react. It's these little things that make up a distinctly Christian vocabulary. So when you're with a friend or a family member next and you see a storm roll in, you can say to them, you can say, hey, look at that, isn't that great? Isn't God amazing? Isn't he powerful? You just see how that goes. You can let me know. You see, by becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus, God's Spirit and His Word transforms our heart and our mind so that we no longer think the way that the world thinks. We're actually transformed to think through the lens of the Bible. That's why I think this psalm is a little bit hard to appreciate. It's because we've conceded too much ground to our neighbour's views. The world, they think, is a natural event, a pure lucky dip of chance. But that is not what the Bible tells us. Look at verse 10. It says, The Lord sat enthroned at the flood. The Lord sits enthroned king forever. So here we have the flood of Genesis chapters 6 to 9. That, that flood which wiped out all of humankind. And that flood shows us that God is king forever. So much so, he doesn't need human beings to enthrone him. He's just the king, whether we like it or not. He sat enthroned as the whole world was wiped out, as all the earth's creatures were wiped out. See, this whole psalm has been sort of drawing us to worship God as the one who reigns in power and glory. He's entirely set apart 
from our existence. Here, he wipes everyone out and he's still enthroned as God. I think this makes the great point that God does not exist in our minds. He doesn't change whether we think one way or the other about him. He doesn't need our acknowledgement. I've spoken to a lot of people and they, they talk about God as if he's nothing more than a figment of our imagination. They like to say things like, well, I like to think of God like this, or I like to think of God like that. But that's not the way reality works. Uh, imagine if I spoke about my wife, Jane, in this way. Imagine if I said, look, you know, I like to think of Jane as having blue skin, and I, I like to think of Jane as, as being a stamp collector. She loves stamps. Uh, and she likes to run marathons every Saturday. Imagine if I said that. If you know Jane, you'd know it's not true. Now, Jane doesn't change depending on what I think about her. She's a real person. <laughs> but that's just it. See, people don't think or talk about God as if he's real. They think about him in a, in a purely subjective uh, manner. But God is who he is. You and I, we can't change that. God sits enthroned whether humans exist to worship him or not. God is king forever. I think the flood reminds us of, of two things. On the one hand, it reminds us of God's righteous anger against sin, an anger that we all deserve for the wrong things we've done, for our sin. On the other hand, though, it reminds us that for those whom God has called, well, he is our strength and our peace. See, at the flood, God chose Noah and his family to be saved by building an ark. And on that ark, they were rescued from the flood. And I don't know if you know it, but we too live in a very similar world today. Hear these words from Jesus in Luke 17. Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. You see, God will come again in judgment, just like in Noah's time. But this time, God has made the ark. It's in the person of his son, Jesus. See, anyone who trusts in the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins will be spared from that coming judgment. Because that judgment has already been dealt out on the person of his son, where he died on the cross in our place. See, this is why this psalm is such a great and tremendous encouragement. It's a reason for our boasting. It's a reason to come and praise and worship. Because even though God thunders down from above like a fierce storm, he does so for our sake. See, God is our God. And by faith in his son Jesus, he is not angry with us. That's why at the end of this psalm we can say the words of verse 11. We can say the Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a great and powerful God. We thank you that the power of your voice is clearly seen in all creation. We pray that you'd transform the way that we see the world around us and give you the glory that you deserve. And help us, Father, in these times to hold on to the person of your Son, Jesus Christ in whom we have been delivered safely into your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.